Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, we examine ordering chèvre, the carbon footprint of anchovies, where tomato juice tastes best, and cow tech innovations. Hello, Joshna. Hello. It's episode four. Episode four, season two, episode four. That's very exciting. We really settled into life happily here in our new frequency home. That's right. It is cozy. Things are good. So I wanted to talk to you today. There was a bit of a scuffle in the beer world. And it reminded me of a pet peeve I had in the food world. Okay. So what happened in the beer world is this gentleman in the UK wrote an article about how in beer we use foreign terms for things that actually have a name in English. So he named a couple of them. One of them I remember is uh, Furder, which is essentially a large vat. Like think of um, like a barrel, but if it was, you know, as big as a building. Oh, so the th- okay. It's a large wooden those bat. Things, I got it. Yes. yes. So the furder is a term that comes to us from the Belgian brewing tradition. And when we're brewing Belgian style, I guess it's just sexier to use the Belgian term. Yes. And his whole thing was, you know, why are we being like this? It's it's a vat. Let's just call it a yes, vat. Yes, yes. And this reminded me. <laughs> tell me, tell me. Of how much I get annoyed every time I read a menu and I see the word chevre. Right. Instead, I you just, just, want, to snap you just want goat cheese. You it's want goat to cheese. just say goat cheese. Why are you calling it chef? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's. It, I understand this. Um, tell me more about the peeve. Tell me more about the the pet peeve. It just it bothers me that uh, the so the ones that immediately come to mind the yeah. two that what work else? me are chef and uh, charcuterie. <laughs> which should be charcuterie. Right. <laughs> it bothers me because they're cold cuts. And yeah. I ended up in this long debate with someone about, oh, well, if we can, we have to distinguish them from cold cuts because when you say cold cuts, you think bologna um, uh, and, and things like that. And this mass-produced thing. And yeah. when I think cold cuts, I think salami, yeah. prosciutto. Those are the cold cuts mm-hmm. that I grew up with. Uh, first of all, and second of all, if you're going to bring that argument, then we need to come up with a new word for burger, for anything that isn't made, you know, that isn't an actual beef yes. patty. We need to yes. come up with a new word for pizza. Yep. Uh, I'm sorry, like we need to come up with a new word for, you know, numerous types of Chinese foods and yes. d- different yes. things where we're not and, creating and the other. This, like, that's not a good argument. thing happening. That and is, yeah. for me, I guess it just smacks of a kind of elitism and a kind of, I just don't, it's, you know. And pretense. I, I speak French. I see yeah. chef on a menu. I know where you're coming from, right? But, you know, a lot of people might not know what that word means. Where if mm-hmm. you said goat cheese, they would know exactly what that meant. So it's like, why are we creating this space? And yeah. interestingly, they're all French words. I just was curious to know, do you know why this happens? What are your yeah. thoughts on it? So has it ever bothered lot, you? Well, there's, I, I actually have really, I, this troubles me. I don't okay. really know where to land on this. Mm. Right? Because okay. I have, because I cannot deny that there is like a, a sort of window dressing or pretense involved in right. some of this, right? It is to make something sound fancier than it perhaps really is, or mm-hmm. people may understand it to be. Uh, and, and definitely it is the kind of practice that you see when people are writing menus. Yes. People want to be intentionally as impressive as possible um, and let you know how hardcore and French their kitchen is. Okay. Right? That is for sure a thing that's happening. 
Uh, now, it seems to me that this really hinges on the idea about not doing this when there is already an English word for it. Yes, absolutely. Like that seems because in my mind, I thought we can go anywhere with um, because if, if saying like I was thinking about alu matar, for example, right? right. Alu matar is an Indian dish. Alu matar is a Hindi word. Yeah. But truthfully, the translation of mm-hmm. alu matar is literally just potatoes and peas. Okay, but right? isn't it potatoes and, so, and peas prepared in a specific nah, way? No, no, it's just no, potatoes, it's and, potatoes peas? and peas. Potatoes and peas. Alu is potato, matar is peas. Okay. Right? So technically in this context, there is an English word for it. Okay. But if I said to you, potato and peas, uh, saying potato and peas is different than yes. saying alu matar. Because alu matar is the name of the dish, you know, is the name of the dish of the prepared thing with the seasonings right, and all that. Right, but that's the other. with the, the, but that's with the, it, the preparation. Yes. So alu matar does not imply that I'm just going to get potatoes and peas on it my doesn't. plate. It's the, it's, it's the, the whole, whole round, dish. whereas chevre. Is just goat cheese. It's just goat cheese. Right? But like, okay, for example, yeah. you know, words like prosciutto doesn't bother me. It's a very specific item or fo. You know, those are foreign yeah. words, but they point to very specific things. Uh, these, And I think that those are the only three that yeah. the, the charcuterie, chèvre, and courgette are the only three that are commonly used where there is there is an English, although zucchini is not a, well, it is an I English word now. Say, but because uh, the Brits use courgette. Do they? I, yeah, the bricks use courgette and aubergine instead of eggplant and zucchini. Okay. As the as the like the sign in the grocery store says, okay. courgettes. Then I'll 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 let that um, one slide. That was the least egregious for me. And anyway. then okay, now let's let's talk about the chef. Yes. Because I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. However, there are now uh, three or four different kinds of cheese made from the milk from goats. Okay. That's not all that soft log. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, and so it, it, I'm, the question I'm going to ask is, is Chev, when they say Chev, then you know that it is that goat cheese the as opposed log. to other ch- other cheese. Because there's plenty. There's goat cheddar. There's I've had goat feta. There, you know what I mean? Goat, goat's milk finds its way uh, into other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding that I, I really do. I see the pretense. You know what I yeah. mean? I see the yeah. reason to, to roll your eyes it's a tough like this, one. right? Uh, but at the same time, for the purposes of communication and letting somebody know exactly what's in there, yeah. uh, I want to roll down. I mean, you know what I mean, I want to chew this around a little bit because what would be where's accuracy, where's making, where's uh, being concise, mm-hmm. being as concise as possible? Chef is one, you know, chef is one word, goat cheese is two words. Um, in a, you know, the real estate of a menu, um, I just don't know where to draw the line. Right, it's, I see. The I understand need that it's a tough one to pull the reins back, but I don't know where to draw the line. And I, I'll fully admit that this is falls under pet peeve for me. <laughs> right, so there's right, it's right. A, there's an emotional piece to yes. it. You know, I, I come from a position of privilege because I I do speak French, so it's not an issue for me. But it yeah, it it does grate me. So ideally, mm-hmm. in, in in following this logic. What would you have the menu say that is the advertisement for that wooden board full of all of the house cured meats and cheeses? House cured meat and cheeses would be great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds I love it. Lovely. Yeah. Because uh, the other thing is a lot of these things are difficult to pronounce too. Yes. Right? Like why are you asking someone to say charcuterie when they could be saying I'll have house a, made. Yeah, your, the house, you, cured, your right. house cured meats. Uh, I've even gotten <laughs> We're going on it. No, we're going well, on a tangent. Okay, now. amazing. Bring it. But I have had more than one barista get upset with me 
because I asked for a cafe latte and I should be saying latte. What? More than one. Uh, for God's sake. And so, so, it's, so now we're getting on a tangent, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and then the whole like amuse. It's an oh. amuse bush. It's not an amuse. You know, the, we're, we're getting into like, if you want to get snobby, yeah. I'll get snobby. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but this is not the, I don't even, I'm going yes. on a tangent here. But, the, you know, the point is it, when it's not necessary. About the notion that we are living in a bilingual, technically bilingual country. Ideally bilingual country. Yeah. And, and I realize that that's a sort of isolationist approach because it's not, thorough, you know, the French is not thoroughly incorporated. Mm-hmm. But what about the idea that the French lives with the, you know what I mean? That, that, I, that especially here in Canada, I am not, you know, yeah. uh, one way to be like, maybe, maybe we all just know that this is what it is and we can just use these French words. I'm not sure. I still, it's a tricky I hear one. what you're saying. I don't think I these people you. are writing charcuterie on their menu to uh, make to the promote Québécois national, feel welcome. The national inclusion of both of our official languages. Well. <laughs> <laughs> a girl can dream. So, Joshna, what's next? What's next is we're going to talk about climate change diets. Ooh. Right? It's interesting. I've seen it so pop up a lot. eating based on climate change? Yes. Concerns? Eating based on uh, perhaps lowest carbon footprint or even thinking about mitigating climate change, but eating with, with uh, the issue of climate change as your focus. Right? And as you can imagine, there's lots and lots of tips, local food, you know, obviously distance to production and consumption are probably at the top of this list. Right. Uh, right? And there was a piece... Um, that I shared around from the New York Times uh, with advice about what a climate diet could look like, mm-hmm. right? And we'll, there's lots to talk about there with actually with the, what the content is. Yeah. Um, and and the, the, the activist inside of me thinks it is amazing that we, like, it's about time we started having these considerations in where, how we made our decision about what we eat, right? For sure. We just, well, the white cord strawberries and the smoothies and the banana, you know, all these things are like, these are just things that we want, but should we actually be having them? What does the, how does the planet need us to eat? What is, is the impact? Right? Uh, and the thing that I really felt quite compelled by was that it's the first time we're really seeing the notion of a diet or a diet plan that actually is about benefiting someone or something other than yourself. Right. Because when we think of benefiting the planet, often I think of, you know, making sure that I have my cloth grocery bags and, you know, the straws and the packaging. So it's all, you know, what's around the food. Yes. But... Uh, this to me is a new conversation. The idea of actually choosing your food based on yes the environment yes it's, and have the priority about angle. the about uh, essentially it's about production distribution and and waste management of what you eat yes right that's essentially what this is all about. It's like where is it coming from? How is it produced? And then what happens once? You're done with it. I didn't get that so much from the article, though. So tell me your your no, approach yeah, on climate change, yeah. because I love the idea, but this person's article, I was not very happy with. Right. So I mean, the way I would... Let's start with what climate change diet should look yeah, like. Yeah, the way I would advocate <laughs> uh, climate change eating would be to really consider the... I mean, really considering the ingredients in the food that you are eating. Uh, right, be it from a restaurant or a grocery store or even the farmer's market, mm-hmm. right, to really think about where it's come from, how it was grown, and then how 
uh, how how waste is managed for the thing, be it like how far it's traveled, how f- has exactly. it had to fly over. Uh, right. And what has to happen is, is there is it is it a landfill for packaging is, you know, is it is it is it, is it you know, housed in things that won't ever break down. This is the kind of stuff that we have to start considering. Maybe how much waste will be created from the food, you know, if you yes. have to peel a lot off. That's it. If there's lots of like out, outer sheets of things or whatever else it is to really consider every stage of that process. Uh, and I will say that I do understand that that is perhaps more involved uh, than is being suggested in most other places. It is. And I think what I do appreciate about the article was that it was trying to stay approachable because, yes. you know, what you're talking about, I think, uh, requires a certain amount of food literacy. Definitely. And commitment. And yes. one of the things I loved in this article, which I don't understand why it's still a thing, is bottled water. I know. Why are people paying for bottles of water when they're already paying for the water that's coming out of the tap? This is it. And bottled water is not regulated in any way. It could just be tap water that you're paying for, except for... And often is. It's been, the plastic is leached into it (laughs) Exactly. And so it's a little more toxic and, you know, the landfills. Yeah. So, So that part I really liked. And then he, in this article, he went on to say in terms of... Meat eating, you want to stick to chicken and fish. Yes. And yes. I think it's it's common sense that if really if climate change is your concern, then I would say that's a pretty valid reason to go vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Like that for me is, you know, the best way if you're eating just local yep. vegetables and, and fruit and so on. And the then least that's impactful. The way. least yes. impactful way. That being said, and... Um, I think our listeners already know this. I'm not a a huge advocate of vegetarianism. Mm -hmm. I think meat in moderation is an equally valid approach. I do. And there's certainly a lot of evidence that shows that chicken in terms of carbon footprint is much better than, for example, beef. So that was great. Where I got stuck was the fish. Yes, yes, yes. And of course, I got initially just stuck because my back went up because I've noticed this pattern that... Every single article you read, whether it's the best climate change diet, the best weight loss diet, the best diet for, I don't know, athleticism, for yeah. this, for the, it always, always comes down to chicken and fish. It does. And it's like the idea is the world has just decided that chicken and fish are good and that other meats are evil. And yes. so everything needs to come down to that. Yes. So that was my initial instinct. But I thought, you know what? Maybe he's right. And maybe fish is great. Mm. No. No. It is not. So, yes. so as I got digging. Let's see it. Let's hear it. I got yes. into the fine print of it. Yeah. And yes, some fish, some fish mm-hmm. is very low carbon footprint. And the, the biggest source of the carbon footprint for fish, if you think about it, it's totally logical, is how much the boat has to zip around to, yes, ca- to catch of it, course. right? And so the fish that are really low carbon footprint are the tiny, tiny ones. So anchovies mm. and herrings. Okay. So I'm sorry, in this article, when he said eat chicken and fish, I'm sure he was, you know, he the, was not talking no one's about reading that thinking, oh, I'll, I'm going to have anchovies. Yeah. yeah. No. You are right. So when you get into most other types of fish, the carbon footprint is actually equal or higher to pork, yes. which of course is one of the quote it's unquote the tops, yeah. evil meats. Yeah. Uh, it's not on, it's not on top actually. Pork is yeah. quite a bit lower than beef, but f- fish is higher than pork. So why higher. why didn't you mention pork in this article? Because mm-hmm. it's a, it's one of the 
bad. It's one of the bads. Meats, yeah. right? And I understand that the carbon footprint might not necessarily be the biggest issue when you're talking about the oceans. But the truth is we have completely pillaged the oceans. Yes. The populations are thinning. Mm-hmm. And what they have proven is that these thinning populations are a lot more susceptible and reactive to climate change mm, because they're yes. not as robust. And the resilience is not there. Sure. The resilience is yeah. not there. So I don't know. I just got very upset with this whole fish piece. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's a really important piece because the thing that shows up here, which I see a lot too, and to your point is that this is all standing on the industrial food system, right? It's about industrial production practices, mm-hmm. right? But I I would love to see what those numbers are in terms of footprint around natural raising. I mean, you know, natural raising of meat. And is it, is it, how does that change? Right. You know, when we rethink wild caught, <laughs> wild caught fish versus, uh, you know, pasture raised uh, cows and chickens. Uh, how does that change when we're not talking about feedlots? Right. And the other really interesting piece that came up in this article is it also depends on what you're feeding what they're eating. That what they're exactly. eating is the biggest piece because in my mind, I was thinking maybe farmed fish would be a lot better than wild fish, mm-hmm. but uh, no, because no, we have because to put go through such an effort to collect everything that they eat. So it's madness. It's it's tricky, but my back just went up because I feel like people want a carte blanche to eat fish because it's got you know high omegas yes. and they you know it's yes. quote unquote lean cuisine or whatever. Solution. Yes. Um, and the fact that this article in a major newspaper mm-hmm. was making that concession, yeah. which was really like not accurate at all. You know, not at all. he could have said anchovies. <laughs> exactly. If he wanted to, yes. to be real. Um, uh, and to give us the truth uh, about what a, climate yeah. eating actually is That's about. That's right. Right? That's right. Uh, thanks for that. I like the Morella dig on that one. It was important. But I like, I'm going to start thinking. I'm going to start thinking about how we actually make this transition because it feels like a really important bit to consider. A great first step is packaging for me. Yes. I mean, plastic is horrible on every account, climate change and otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, anyone who's looking for like a solid first steps, ditch the water bottles. Yes. And, you know, minimal packaging. And I take think your that's bags. A, yeah. Take your bags. A wonderful start. All right. I like that a lot. I came across a really interesting article and the the idea of the article was, you know, which drinks should you order when you're in flight? Oh, right. Okay. Based on how our senses are muted or affected mm-hmm. in flight. But I, yeah. I find it interesting, you know, beyond the drink aspect to just really think about how much our senses yes. are impacted. And what an altered environment it really is up there. Yeah. Right. Because we all think of, you know, the dryness and the low pressure mm-hmm. up there. And so they've done scientific research and it uh, reduces our sensitivity to sweet and salty mm-hmm. foods. So those two uh, disappear. But the other piece that I thought was really interesting, and this is all airlines doing these studies. Yes. Right. Cause they're trying to make their food taste good. Yes. I guess they're doing their best. Yeah, they're doing their best. <laughs> Is the noise. And that they was really shown, interesting. Yeah. I, I was really, I was really curious about that too. 
So they've done tests, and if you're in a super noisy environment, they replicate the exact noise volume yes. of a plane. There are some things that you just can't taste as well. But then, interestingly, there are some seasonings that you can taste uh, a lot more intensely. More intensely. And I thought you'd be interested in this list. What's Cardamom, list? lemongrass, and curry. Oh. Three flavors I have never had on a flight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just gonna say. I have I have that virtue of the fact that I've flown to India a few times. Oh yeah, uh, right. And some of those menus, and I took a trip to Southeast Asia, and so some lemongrass did show up. And now that you say it, I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, someone's really investing in the cuisine up here with these with these more thoughtful, interesting flavors." It is because they work. It's the science. I love that. So drinks-wise, of course, they talk about um, since your s- sense of sweetness is a little bit dulled, yes, that you can aim for a sweeter wine and maybe something that's less mm-hmm. bitter or less acidic because those two senses aren't dulled. Yep. So that'll give you more an illusion of balance. Uh, interestingly, they talked about Riesling. Oh, yeah. And then they also mentioned it's a wine that's never on flights. So right. I, I guess their science experiments are limited to the food on the airlines and they're not thinking yes, as and far. and they're not thinking. It's true. Because Riesling would actually be pr- probably a pretty smart choice, right? Mm-hmm. That's funny. And then for the dri- for the beer, they the dr- which I call drinks. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. For the beer, they obviously, for the same reason, said steer clear of uh, IPAs, yes. which are all bitterness. No IPAs in the air. And like unless that. you just love that bitterness, in which case yeah, you'll get... Overload, it's cranked, yeah, right. Uh, but one really interesting thing that came up is that uh, umami is actually yeah. enhanced by loud background noise. And then what they talked is about wild. I know. Wow. Okay. And so they these people these drink specialists were talking about bringing um, roasted peas. Yeah. On the plane as a snack to really enhance the drinking experience. Oh, that is amazing. But the other thing that's really rich in umami is uh, tomato juice. There, here we go. And I like this. In the article, they mentioned that people tend to order more tomato juice in the air, and it hit me. That's the only time I drink tomato juice yes. in flight, and I do it all the time. Yes, I do too. Uh, I do too. And I had the same response. I was like, bing, triggered by this tomato juice conversation. And then I thought in light of the piece that you had shared, I'm like, I need to revisit this tomato juice conversation to figure out how that fits all into this now new knowledge that we have. Tell me more. Right. So I did some digging on my own and I found some fascinating stuff. First of all, we I found some some you know lab academic science proven information about why tomato juice is such a popular airline beverage. Okay, right. And one of the things that I loved is that um, the uh, there are a couple of things people talked about. One is that because of our dulled taste buds, the dullness mm-hmm. around the sweet and the salty, the 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 inherent sweetness and saltiness becomes manageable. Okay. Right? Of it balances out. And be- the altitude, uh, it removes that sort of heavy muddiness that we that also comes with tomato juice. So it's more than the umami. It is more than the, the umami is part every of every aspect. But the truth is, it really appears as though tomato juice becomes a whole other thing in the air. Wow. Right? And our relationship to it is it is it is a much more palatable, enjoyable thing because it is meeting us where we are in this sort of compromised state 
30,000 feet in the air. And there, I think there is also something to be said about that pulpier texture in a dry environment. Yes. It's, yes. I guess other, more pleasing. Precisely. I think that that was actually mentioned. And then the really? last curious bit was that with trimming costs and budgets and whatever it is, uh, a glass or a can of tomato juice is a bit of a meal in a can. Right. Right. It is one of the most sort of nutritionally dense, potentially nourishing things that are on that cart uh, that, you know, that spins up in the, the aisle. Also, it's it's vegetables, which is, you know, exactly. a rare thing to find exactly. in the wild. So it's <laughs> now just to make things interesting, the piece that I found was a story from 2018 mm-hmm. about United Airlines. Yes. Right? They were attempting to trim some budgets and they thought that they would that one of the things they would do was narrow <laughs> the inventory on those beverage carts. Let me guess. Right. Who yes. drinks tomato juice? Who? Nobody. Nobody. Wow. <laughs> right. And so they decided to chuck the tomato juice and there was like virtual bona fide revolution. Uh, and mo- obviously this happened via social media. What? Uh, customers are very quick to express their outrage. Uh, and so shortly after this happened, United Airlines posted on their Twitter feed, you say tomato, we say we hear you. Tomato juice is here to stay. Hashtag let's call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing Good off. Good on them, right? Yeah. And so the tomato <laughs> juice is back on uh, and nobody's messing with it because we really understand uh, that tomato juice works up in the air. It, and we're not alone. And we're not alone. It's all of us together. It's a real yes. thing. And yeah. backed by science. Okay, Morella, you have brought the most adorable piece here. Let's. What's next? What's next? So this story came to my attention. I heard it in passing on the radio and I thought, no way. It, it just seemed so unreal. And then I started snooping around. It was on many major news sources. It was repeated. And uh, although there were some questions marked raised, no one has debunked it in any way. So I think it might be true. I love it. And the story is this. It's insane. Yes. Uh, in Moscow, there is a project that involves putting VR goggles on cows. So, you know... These would have been goggles that are especially designed for right, cow heads the wider head, and of cow vision, which is apparently the different. They have a different spectrum of colors that they see. So they've designed these goggles. Oh my God, of course. That the goal of the goggles is to relax the cows so that uh, they can produce better milk and more milk. And in the VR goggles, what they are seeing is just a sunny day in a lovely green pasture which is i guess not their current environment mm-hmm. <laughs> i think it's a little gray out there uh, i think you're right oh it's just the pictures of these cows the, the vision of the cow sort of mindlessly shooting its head around trying to figure out what's up what's up and down well it's is a tremendous thing to watch and i when i read the piece that you sent over i was like i was like this is this is the height of human madness Right. Right. It is just so accelerated because es- essentially the what is the, the pasture is mm-hmm. actually the place that they're supposed to be standing. Right. 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 <laughs> it's only because they're being raised in this sort of industrial feedlot hooked up, especially for dairy cows. This is major like cranked up to a machine for a lot of time. And I mean, maybe the machine's not the problem, but uh, 
I thought, how amazing that because we've decided to intensify production on dairy, mm-hmm. cow dairy, that we are now, and, and the thought to just let them roam properly in some nature is not an, on the table. Uh-huh. I, th- right? I think some of them were actually roaming, but it just wasn't a luscious, green, gorgeous pasture. Oh, fascinating. It might have just been a more arid climate right. a little bit grayer not as dreamy yeah. um but it, this is a real thing so relaxed and happy cows definitely produce better and more milk yes and there's all kinds of some people will play uh send violinists out to play yes. some classical music to their cows yes. a lot of people massage their cows conversations uh, yeah all of which though are interactive mm-hmm. things right this vr goggles is the opposite of interacting yes right it's it's isolating completely those cows uh and it feels like to me it's just it just feels nuts right because i think that the piece that we're not connected to is that when this shift towards industrial dairy production happened yields per cow would have dropped that makes sense. You know yeah. what I mean? If we move from this sort of idyllic pastured scenario, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because a lot of the, the argument in defense of the factory farming is about increasing yield. Yield, yep. Right? So the irony is not law, right? Or and efficiency, so, I guess. E- efficiency is the perfect word. So to, to realize that we are at a place now where, where the solution to this, mm-hmm. to these lower yields as a result of industrial production, because these poor cows, these ladies yeah. are stressed out. Not happy. In this other scenario, uh, and that the solution is to put these goggles on them, is extra- like it is extraordinary. These, these are the things that will go down in the books as like <laughs> the height of particular human madness. Also, I don't own VR goggles, but I imagine that custom design VR goggles for a cow would not be super cheap. So it makes me this wonder is a about really key piece here. the, you know, how much more value are you know how much more milk are they producing and is vr goggles really the most logical yes. way to is make these the best cows use of the resources maybe there here, is a yeah. lovely pasture nearby this is the thing how about they know. just stand in some nice grass maybe, maybe. unbelievable oh, anyway it. this was released by the uh, ministry of agriculture and food in the moscow region oh, okay this study and they've said that it it does look like it has an impact but further further studies are required mm. so the my favorite line mm-hmm. was that it's uh that the life in the goggles helped to soften the mood <laughs> i missed that one <laughs> which was the best <laughs> If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a rating or review. It helps others find us. Hot Plate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Original music by Dave Bell. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Virology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening. Thank you.